Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be here with the people of God in the presence of God, um, in the quote-unquote temple of God. Welcome to week seven of our series in the book of John called Superman HD. We're going to be looking at John chapter two, the second portion, and we'll be concluding that chapter today. Superman HD, the redefinition. Jesus is is human and he's divine. And we're going to continue to look at how John helps us to appreciate that further today. Um, our, our topic today, our title is A Passion for God's Place, Presence and People. A Passion for God's Place, Presence and People. Now it's Mother's Day. We've been celebrating that for the past hour or so. <clears throat> Some of us all morning and we'll continue to do so for the rest of the day, I would hope. And it's a time when we remember our mums, and rightly so. How many of you know that I'm sure there ain't one person who wouldn't fight to defend your mother, literally or metaphorically? You'd never allow anyone to disrespect your mother. I mean, there used to be back in the day, it's like, man, I cuss you about a whole heap of things. Tell you about your trousers, tell you about your drain pipes, and you know what I'm saying? Tell you about. But if a, man, if a man ever say anything to you about a mom, how many of you know it's over? It's just peak. It's like, it's just it's a line that you just don't cross. <clears throat> because mothers deserve honor. Amen? And not just on Mothering Sunday, but every day. Could I, could, could I, could I take the liberty for a moment, like momentarily, to take. The focus off of mums, just for a minute. It's your day, I know that. You know what I mean? But just for a minute, because <clears throat> the same is true about fathers. We don't just remember fathers on Father's Day. The same is true of any house. Mothers and fathers need to be honoured. Amen? Now, by virtue of that same fact, the same is true about God's house. How many of you know that God the Father deserves honour? Not just on Sunday, but every day. But we'll see that God the Father is being dishonored, dissed, if you, if you like, by his own people in our passage today. John chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading at verse 13. Says the Passover, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the, the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for, for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Shall we pray? Father, thank you that your word is life. And thank you that it's light and it gives understanding to the simple. Lord God, we're simple people. And we recognize that well. Would you, by your grace, allow your word to bring life to our lives today? Would you bring light to our understanding, Lord God, on the basis of the glory and the wonder that we see in the text? Father, would you help us to behold Jesus in a in a new and fresh and a living way. And it's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. This week's passage stands in stark contrast to last week's passage. How I many of you know celebration was the tone of that previous passage? Last week we were at a wedding, which which is a private yet public, but local affair. This time, in the second section of chapter 2, we have another public, but far from private affair. This is a national event. It's still a celebration, but it's on a much, much larger scale. After this wedding celebration, verse 12 says, After this, he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, which is about six miles away from the wedding that we were previously at, at Cana. It says, and his mother Mary and his brothers, this is his biological half-brothers, right, who at this point don't believe in him, and his disciples, who do believe him at this point, remember it's Andrew, John, Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, and it says they stayed there, that, that is at Capernaum for a few days. Now, there's a possibility that Jesus' disciples have literally been staying with Jesus. You might remember from chapter 1, verse 38, 39, where they said they wanted to see where he stayed. Well, it's been quite a while now. Obviously, they've been at a wedding. They've been hanging out. They've been chilling. Along with his family, we see his disciples. We see, we, see, we see them with him and obviously also Jesus' mother and brothers. And a part of what is, is possibly happening here is Jesus has for the whole of his life been an obedient son. That is with regards to his earthly, his, his earthly mum and dad, Mary and Joseph, right? 
and Joseph has possibly passed away by now. That's potentially why he's not mentioned. But the thing is, Jesus is now moving into a, a new phase of his life. Where he will now leave his mother to fully pursue the will of his heavenly father. Now Jesus will travel to Jerusalem. A journey that he probably made a number of times, right? Because remember, there are three festivals in Israel. And possibly three times a year for the past 30 years, minimum, Jesus would have traveled to Jerusalem. And <clears throat> remember when he was left behind once when he was 12 years old? Remember that time? He was found where? In the temple. In the temple about his father's business. Remember? Yeah. Yet he wasn't able at that time to give himself fully because his time had not yet come. Right? Remember that last week in verse 4 when he said to his mom, like, what are you, like my time ain't yet. Now his time had come and he's making his way up to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem is south, but you always go up when you go up to the to the capital, to the city, right? And and it was literally up, you know what I'm saying, in terms of um, sea level and elevation. Um, but if you're in Manchester and you go to London, you go up to London even though you go south, not because it's a higher elevation, but that's just the way it is, right? So they go up to, to Jerusalem. And <clears throat> with or without his parents and his family, this time now, it's possible that his parents do. Sorry, his his mum does and his brothers do because it's the it's it's this massive feast. But it seems like what we see here is Jesus is evidently spending more time now with his with his boys, with his disciples, and he's on a mission, isn't it? And I wonder if you can see that that transition being pointed out in verse twelve. Well, verse 13, it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So this is the celebration, right? And Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Now, this is a national celebration. It's, it's, it's a major festival that would have seen possibly hundreds of thousands, maybe even one to two million people visit Jerusalem through the course of the next seven days because Passover was a seven day long festival. And people were coming from all over Israel like Jesus did with his disciples and possibly his family. But <clears throat> there were also visitors from outside of Israel. Visitors from all over the Roman Empire at the time. Jews and also Gentile converts from all over the world. And what were they coming to celebrate? Passover. Now Passover was the, the, commem the commemoration of Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery, remember? 1500 years previous to this time in the text, that'd be three and a half thousand years ago, back in their history, the Israelites were captives for how long? For 400 years. And God raised up a deliverer called who? Moses, who under God's direction instructs the people to take the blood of a slain lamb and to, and to splash it onto the doorframe of the houses. 
and, and that they would get in the house behind the blood. And that blood, as, as simple as it sounds, would protect everyone inside the house, particularly who? The firstborn. Because God had promised that if they didn't put the blood on the doorposts, the deaf angel would come and he would slay the firstborn in that house. But if the blood was on the doorposts, he would pass over that obedient household. Now, Pharaoh disobeyed and his son died as a result, which led to him releasing the children of Israel from their cruel bondage, right? <clears throat> this was all in fulfillment of God's plan through which he would deliver his people Passover. This was one of the major festivals on the Jewish calendar, also commonly known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened bread, that's bread with no yeast in it. And because when they were leaving Egypt, they had to leave quickly, they never had time for the bread to rise. So, in celebration of this festival, the Jews would eat unleavened bread to remind them of that time. And it's possibly more than coincidence that last week's celebration involved what? Do you remember what happened at Cana? It was a wedding and, the, and what was flowing. right? It's no coincidence. And this week's celebration involves bread. Bread and wine. In any case, here we are in, in the heart of Jerusalem. Where specifically? At the temple. See that in verse 14. Which is where the festival found its climax. But sadly, for all the wrong reasons on this particular day. And I would agree with John MacArthur that our text splits up into three sections. Verse 13 to 17, verse 18 to 22, and verse 23 to 25. The first section is Jesus' passion for God's reverence. Secondly, Jesus' power in his resurrection. And thirdly, Jesus' perception of people. Verse 14. In the temple, he, that is Jesus, found those at this time who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Hmm. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade now is Jesus at this point having a temple temper tantrum no it's much deeper than that see it's his passion for God's reverence. First of all, oxen, sheep, and pigeons. Remember, this would be a time of animal sacrifices, right? <clears throat> Which literally meant sacrificing and offering, depending on what one could afford. These were, were being sold, that is, these animals, these sacrifices, on this temple site. And that for a for a healthy prophet, Warren Wisby 
says with regards to this, he says, thanks for getting the projector back up. He says, no doubt this religious market began as a convenience for the Jews who traveled long distances to worship in the temple. But in due time, the convenience became a business, not a ministry. See, previous to this, merchants would sell these animal sacrifices. Again, because people are traveling from far, right? So it's understandable. They used to sell them across the Kidron Valley, just over on the Mount of Olives. But now, all of a sudden, they've transferred now into the very temple courts. And it's in this outer court, because you know you've got the outer court, you've got the inner court, and then you've got the outer court. It's called a court of the Gentiles. And this is, this is where Gentiles who were interested or had a desire to relate to the God of Israel would come. And what a sight this would be for them. How off-putting would this be for them if they were coming to focus on God? And how many of you know, when it comes to a worship environment, there are many different trappings that actually can become distractions. And the main thing ceases to be the main thing. And other things begin to become the main thing. But it's very gradual how this happens. And trading is now taking place in the temple. And the second thing happening here was, if you like, you could call it Bureau de Change. You know what that is, right? Travelex, like when you're traveling. And you... Whenever, <clears throat> whatever currency you used in the temple had to be converted into a half shekel um, in order to pay this temple tax. So people are obviously coming from different places. They've got different currencies and they'd have to change them. And hence the money changers were exchanging foreign money for Jewish currency. And they were then adding on a percentage. Now, who, who, who would have been responsible for what took place here? Well, it would have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests. At best, they allowed this to happen. At best. At worst, they were getting a cut of the prophets. It's reminiscent of the crooked priests in 1 Samuel 2. I don't know if you guys remember Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas. <clears throat> says in 1 Samuel 2, it says, Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come, and this is the context of offering sacrifices, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Because with the raw meat, he could sell that, and he could make a profit on that. Verse 16, And if the man said to him, but wait a minute, Mr. Priest. He says, let them burn the fat first, innit? And then, th and then you can take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Now, this is a priest, remember. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men, Hophni and Phinehas, was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. See, a similar thing is happening in the temple courts now. And Jesus was having none of it. Now generally speaking. There's, there's nothing wrong with doing business. And I'm making a profit. 
It's not that it shouldn't happen. It's just that it shouldn't happen here. Jesus said, do not make my father's house a house of trade. So Jesus carefully constructs a whip. A nice whip. And what did he do? Verse 15, he drove them all out of the temple. He drove them, them all out of the temple. Now we've been this week in our discipleship ministry training, DMT. We've been reading through the book of Ezekiel. And listen to what I came across as I was reading chapter chapter 8. I don't know, Thursday or so. Ezekiel chapter 8. Verse 6, and he said to me, this is the Lord speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here. Where? In the temple. To what? To drive me far from my sanctuary. See, this sinful behavior portrayed by God's people both in 1 Samuel and here in this, in this verse in Ezekiel and now in our text is actually an act that rejects God. Even to the point where it pushes God, as it were, out, out of his rightful place. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Driving him out of his sanctuary, out of his temple, how abominable is that? And Jesus says, no. He says, you think you can drive God out with your abominable practices? He says, how about I drive you out? Jesus had a passion for God's reverence. Can you see that? And what happened here in the temple was a reflection of the spiritual condition of the nation. Their religion had gotten dull and routine-like. Look how it then developed and transitioned into greed, into hard-heartedness, into, into disregard for God. Didn't start there, but that's, that's where it eventually gets to. The Jews were still meeting in the right place, but not in the right way. They were singing the same songs, but not with an, un, not with an undivided heart. You know, undivided, like a heart that's divided goes in different ways, right? They were still giving, they were still paying the temple tax, they were still paying their tithes. But it wasn't out of gratitude. They were still saying the same words with eyes closed and every head bowed, but they weren't praying. Now, does this apply to us? Of course it does. Because we're no better than them, are we? We're no better. We easily slip and slide into monotony and into ritual. Like, do it. Why do you do this? Well, I'll just do it because it's what I do. You don't think about it on a Sunday morning, just get up and go to church, isn't it? It's what, it's, it's what we do. See, and the problem is we might still be meeting in the right place, but are we meeting in the right way? We might be singing the same songs or even new songs. But is it coming from our lips or is it coming from our hearts? 
I know I'm guilty of this. I, I tell you, talk about being convicted as, you know, everybody on this side of the pulpit is just as, as, as guilty of everyone on the other side of the pulpit. And, and I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of just ritualistically going through the motions. See, we may be given our time, our talent, our treasure. But are we doing these things with a pure or a selfish motive? See, we can still be saying the right words with eyes closed and heads bowed. But are we genuinely praying? Well, I'm, I'm sure that this wasn't something that happened overnight. And yet over a process of time, we can begin to get monotonous, tedious, repetitious, dull, disinterested, and disconnected. And yet we haven't stopped doing anything externally. It's just that internally, God is no longer our passion. And we arrive at a place of, notice, uncritical satisfaction. It's like, I'm quite satisfied and I don't even feel like I need to critique my own life. That's, that's one of the reasons why we have communion, isn't it? So that we can, on a regular basis, examine ourselves. See, it's easy to arrive at a place of self-approval and become arrogant and proud. To become complacent and then lukewarm. Revelation 3 says it's a state of desensitization. Completely ignorant of our true spiritual state. Revelation chapter 3 verse 15 through 17 says God says come on now who are you kidding? It says I know what's going on. Remember, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is he who walks among the seven golden candlesticks. And what are the candlesticks? They're the seven churches. I'm saying, I'm here and I see Steve sitting there. And you know, I'm saying, I see Rohan, I see Byron, I see Marky G sitting there. But what I don't see is Jesus often, and I'm saying, sitting right there. Right in the, in the midst of the church. Beholding the evil and the good. Lord help us. Lord help us. He says I know your works. And he says come on now let's be honest. You're neither cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. How I many of you know a cold drink on a hot day is a nice thing. And a hot drink on a cold day. Hmm. Hot chocolate with some marshmallows. Hmm. But who who wants something that's in, you ever had a, you ever had a cup of tea on the side and you forgot that it was there, and you're rushing around trying to get the kids ready for school. Mums, can I get a witness? And I'm saying the two teas you remember. Oh, that cup of tea. You go to drink it and you put it to your mouth and it's tepid. You know what I mean? It's kind of that's not how you like your tea. If you want tea and you, and you want it colder, you put it in the fridge and you and put ice in it. That's iced tea. But you don't want something that's in between. What do you do with it? You, you end up spitting that back out in the sink. Whether anyone's looking or not looking, right? <laughs> I think that the King James Version uses the word vomit. It's like 
it's like it's 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 more than what I've explained. Do you know when you eat food? Like Jordan's not here today. He's not feeling well in it. Don't tell him I told you, but he's got the runs in it. And <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. And it, you'll be like, trust Pastor Rob, man. It's just so graphic. Sorry. Now you're really with me now, innit? Right. Now why did I say that? So he's so he's at home, innit? And um and he, he said to me, Dad, he said, Dad, I feel like I'm gonna throw up. And I'm like, for real. And I and it's funny because I never even thought about it, even though I was thinking about this. I'm, I remember now the fact that when 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 you throw up, you know what I'm saying, what your body is doing is your body is rejecting some a foreign body, something that's not going to benefit you, right? Um, often it's something that you've eaten that is stale, or you know what I'm saying, is been, you know, and your body rejects it. It's pretty much what's happening here. God's like, you know what? Imagine when somebody says you make me sick, even to the point where it could potentially be a picture of God vomiting up, or God, re- God. Remember, remember, Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. So if, if, if he throws up something that is not actually, it's possibly indicating that it doesn't belong to the body. Because if it was, it would, it would digest it and metabolize it and it would become a part of the body. Could it be a picture of, you know what, actually you're not a Christian. And um, the danger of this becoming a reality in our lives is scary. He says, look, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For Notice, for you say, I'm rich. It's like, and I'm prosperous. I don't need anything. I'm good out here. Now, it's all right if we say in Christ we're prosperous. It's all right if we say on the basis of my relationship with God, he provides all things for me. But when I get to the point where I'm like, I'm good, man. Like, Bridget, you're, like, what's, what's happening in terms of your relationship with God? Like, don't ask me no questions. Like, it's, it's actually none of your business. Now, people won't normally say that with their lips. But, I mean, I know I've been guilty of saying that in my heart when people want to step to me and ask me about my spiritual life. Or want to challenge me. That's why it's so it's, it's so vital that we have accountability. You know what I mean? Where people can speak into our lives. And we can be honest and we can tell each other really what I go on. And we can say, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm in a bit of a backslidden state right about now if I'm honest. I ain't really trying to read my Bible. And I really ain't got, ain't got no motivation to pray. Hey. Pray for me, man. You know what I mean? And often the case is an individual will be in that state and they'll, and it's one of two things. They, they will either not say anything and the problem is we don't say anything to each other so that person can stay in that state for, for weeks, for months, for years. But then the other thing is often when someone's feeling like that, they just duck out. They're just like, I'm not feeling the church thing and I ain't got time to pretend. I can't fake it. So I just allow it. But see here, the Lord knows where we're at in it. So really, we just need to be honest and admit it and say, wow, 
You know what? For real. I'm wretched. Actually, I'm, you should pity me. If I told you about the, the deep, dark secrets of my life, you, you would pity me. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and spiritually, I'm deficient. I'm poor. And, and I feel like Adam in the garden. I want to hide. Why? Because I feel naked and exposed. And the Lord then says, you know what? It can help us when we admit that we're in that place, whether we admit it. Um, what is it when you admit it personally? What's that word? When you admit it without being provoked to admit it. Voluntarily. When you voluntarily admit it. And I'm saying, or even when someone says, we're honest and we say, this is what's happening. This is where I'm at. You know what I mean? The Lord can work with that. He then says, you know what? I can provide you with what you need. I can give you true riches because true, yeah, you are a pauper. You know, but Jesus is a prince. You know, he says, I can, I can, I can, I got, I got clothing to cover your evident nakedness. I got a robe of righteousness that, that can provide covering for you. You know what I'm saying? And I can provide you with ointment for your eyes, some optics to help you see. Yeah, so let's be honest. With the Lord, with ourselves, and with one another. Amen. Because then he says in verse 19 of Revelation 3, Those who I love, I expose them like that. Those who I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous, in it? And repent. Be quick to repent. And let's, let's try and do Let's try and be honest and say, yeah, that's me. You know what I mean? Thank the Lord if you're, you're like, you're flying. You're like, you're like, boy, Pastor Rob, really, I can't even lie. I feel like I'm cruising at 34,000 feet. Praise the Lord. I mean, but I'm sure that not everyone is necessarily in that place. And if you're not, let's just be honest, then it? Because we're not fooling anybody but ourselves. See, and that's what Jesus is doing here. See, G Jesus seems really harsh. He's like he's going in, right? But it's actually an act of grace. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, on the back of the whole prophecy about um, John the Baptist going before him, Right, it says, and he will suddenly come to his temple. See, this is and this is this is the scary thing. He will suddenly come to his temple, and God did. And Jesus, if you like, God manifested in the flesh, suddenly came when they weren't expecting it, and he cleaned house. I mean, even a judgment begins in the house of God, doesn't it? And this was his father's house, and just like when he was twelve years old. Jesus, Jesus is, up, is, is still about his father's business. But now on another level. And Mary and Joseph ain't there to hold him back. Forevermore. No one is brave enough to try and hold him back. This is a complete contrast to what, we've often, to what we often expect of Jesus. Now, no, now, now noted, it's not very often we see Jesus like this. But let's be honest and say, rah. This is the same Jesus. This is the same Jesus. There he is. In a crib, a child. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And that's how we like him. In the crib. We don't really trouble nobody. See, that's what we're used to. But how many of you know that there's another side to Jesus? If you think this is bad, I mean, see the picture, innit? 
Him driving people out, kicking over tables and chairs, pushing people down the stairs. I'm like, get the picture. But if you think this is bad, how about when Jesus returns at his second coming? If you think this is bad, what happens when he, what happens when he comes back and he exchanges a whip for a sword? Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11, says, Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Hey, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Remember Revelation chapter 1, describing who John saw, who met John Luke. And his voice was like a multi-titanic, like Niagara Falls. You ever been to Niagara Falls? Well, this is what it's like when someone stands next to you at Niagara Falls and tries to speak to you because it's so loud. John collapses. He faints. This is Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, crowns. Not just one, because he's a king, right? But what type of king is he? He's the king of kings. He got multiple crowns. Yo. Now, it says, verse, verse, middle of verse 12. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Now, that's why I can't hate on tattoos. Because there's another verse that talks about the fact that he's got this tattoo all the way down his thigh, right? Verse 13, he, he, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, remember who's writing this. Who's, who wrote the book of Revelation? Sound familiar? John chapter 1, verse 1. The word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was... God and the word was with God. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven. Oh my gosh. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. With which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath. Of God the Almighty. See why people don't want to read the book of Revelation. Verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh. There we go. He has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17. Goes on. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come. Gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings. The flesh of captains. The flesh of mighty men. The flesh of horses. And their riders. The flesh of all men. Both free and slave. Both small and great. Indiscriminate. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. With all their armies gathered to make war against him. Why try? Who was sitting on the horse and against, and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the, lake, into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So out of a passion for God's reverence, Jesus, this same individual, ransacks the temple, challenging the status quo. And verse 17 says, 
His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. <laughs> Remember that Jesus' disciples are standing here, right? And they're, wa- they're watching this, this scary scene. And you can only imagine their shock at this spectacle. I mean, they must have thought, oh my goodness, like what on earth have we let ourselves in for? Who, who's this, who is this brother that we're, we're following? I mean, they had multiple times when this ran through their mind. <laughs> Later on, it will all make sense. As they realize that Jesus continues to fulfill the prophecies that relate to the Messiah. Verse 17 is a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. And even the temple authorities, they stand by horrified, yet completely unable to intervene apart from verbally. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, I wonder if we could just turn down the heat in a little bit. Um, Thank you. Just turn it down to like 22 or 23. So the Jews said to him, verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who gives you authority to be coming in and who do you think you are? Sounds bold and brave. It ain't really. As we saw in chapter 1, these representatives, these ones, possibly members of the Sanhedrin, um, the Jewish governing authority, the Jewish governing body, they desire credentials like they did back. Remember, they sent these individuals a delegation to find out who John the Baptist was earlier. Now they want to know, wait a minute. Now they don't have to send a delegation this time. Here he, he, He's come to them. And they want to know, who do you think disrupting our religious gathering? But surely this is an admission of, of their guilt. They are evidently asking the wrong question. Listen to what D.A. Carson says about this. He says, one, they display no reflection or or self-examination regarding Jesus' charges that he brought against them. How, how about what you're doing in, in, in the father's house? Isn't that an issue? Completely ignore that. It, this is the state of their heart. They, they're oblivious to their own sinfulness. Number two, if they were convinced that Jesus was a petty hooligan, they could have charged him for an evident breach of the peace. The fact that they requested a sign demonstrates that they harbored at least a suspicion that they were dealing with a heavenly, a heaven-sent prophet. Asking him to prove his authority. The fact that he did it proved his authority. Jesus then takes the discussion into another dimension. Chapter, um, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. I mean, talk about random, right? And Jesus then said, sorry, and the Jews then said, wait a minute. Like, we knew that there was, like, you were like a, you're a nutcase, right? Now, look, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. Ha, 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 ha. Verse 21, but he, he wasn't, he, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead later on, his disciples remembered, oh my gosh, that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. If John didn't give us verse 22 as added information as the narrator, 
we would have been as mystified as these onlookers. True? They evidently understand Jesus to mean the physical brick temple that they were standing in. And at this point of the conversation, <laughs> they're none the wiser. That's exactly what they think he's talking about. Much later at Jesus' trial, before his death, this is going to be used as evidence against him. The reason he needs to die is because he determined that he would destroy the temple. What blasphemy! How dare he even contemplate such a... Yet Jesus wasn't even talking about that temple. You see how Jesus can be easily misunderstood? You've got to be careful. And notice he doesn't explain it. Jesus often uses people's misunderstanding as a judgment. That's why we gotta be we gotta be quick, we've got to be humble. You know, when we think we know when we think we know, we may not know. I remember I remember my stepdad, if I remember it correctly. He used to say something like, he who thinks he knows and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Shun him. <laughs> don't, don't be that guy who thinks, you know, just be humble. You know what I mean? Even when you think you know, just be like, well, I'm not sure. And be teachable. You know what I mean? We're never too old. And the problem is when you get older, it becomes harder because they say it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, right? So for those of us that are older, you see, I just put myself in the old, I'm admitting it. I'm in the old category now. And I mean, my next big, my, my next big birthday is 50. And that means two years away. Wow. So particularly for us, whoever falls in that category, my eyes just glanced over at Red's. <laughs> he's, he's shaking his head. He ain't having it. <laughs> Speak to somebody else, right? May the Lord help us to be teachable. There are the t there, and, 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 and God will use our misunderstanding if, we, if we're proud and we're arrogant to judge us. You know what I mean? When we're not humble. Remember, what does God do? It's, the scripture says that God, he, he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. I don't want to be resisted, and I'm sure you don't too. So may the Lord help us to, to humble ourselves. Amen. I say, when you're on your knees, you ain't got very far to fall. When you're up here and you elevate yourself, hey. <laughs> Splat. There are times when the Lord will open someone's eyes, and, but there's also a time when he doesn't. On the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, the Lord opened their eyes. Saul, huh, on the road to Damascus, the Lord opened his eyes. Blind him first though, right? Lick him off, clap him off his horse and blind him. And it's funny, it's when, he, when, he, when he was blind, that's when he began to see. That's, that's, that's sometimes what we need, isn't it? Esau, on the other hand, the Lord never opened his eyes. Pharaoh, the Lord never opened his eyes. And John records a few other occasions when Jesus speaks in cryptic language, describing something spiritual. We'll see that in John 3. Except a man be born again. Hmm? What? You cannot see the kingdom of God in chapter 6. Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no life in you. Huh? That's cannibalism. Chapter 11. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. 
Huh? All these statements are given without any clear explanation. And here, even the disciples don't get it until Jesus rises from the dead. See, these are natural pictures with a spiritual meaning. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And this is really helpful because it shows me that as a disciple, there are going to be some things that I might not understand straight away. But it's alright. Like the Trinity, it's alright. I mean, I don't, does anybody ever get to fully understand the Trinity? And I'm saying, but, but I may in time, by the grace of God, and I can say that years down the line, there are things that are much clearer now than they were back then. And I'm sure that you could raise your hand and bear testimony of exactly the same fact. What Jesus was doing here was actually saying something incredible. I'm going to see if I can do this in in 10 minutes. What Jesus was doing here was actually saying that he he would be the temple that replaces the temple. He would become the temple that is going to replace this amazing temple. And this temple motif... It was quite an amazing concept. See, what typically defines a temple is that it's the place where what happens? Worship, sacrifice. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But fundamentally, it's the place where God and men meet. Fellowship. Where God meets with man. Temple. That's why, I mean, whether it's a Buddhist temple or Muslim temple or Sikh temple, people go to these places with the, with the perspective that I'm going to connect with God there. And even some people talk about quote-unquote church like that. And often they're talking about the building. Oh my gosh, go to the building. All of a sudden, they don't, you don't you stop swearing when you're in the building. That children have got to be quick, be quiet. You're in, you're in, a, you're in church. And I'm saying, and, and <clears throat> people's perception of it is that, ooh, in this place, in this space, God is here. So you've got to be on your P's and Q's. See, and the fact that from a biblical point of view, what the temple represents is this coming together where God meets with man. And we see this idea of temple throughout the Bible, literally from Genesis to Revelation. Walk with me. In Genesis chapter 2, Right, I'm just going to show you a picture of the garden there. Right, obviously it's not a photograph. Right, it's a picture because nobody, no no DSLRs in them days. Right. Now notice, in the garden, you have a garden. Related to this gut trees and fruits and related to this garden is gold and precious stones. You read Genesis chapter two. In this garden it has trees and a particular tree that gives life. It has a river, actually a river that splits into four adjacent to this garden. It seems to be on a mountain because the river flows. I mean, if you know, for a river to flow, it needs an incline to flow down. Ezekiel calls Eden the mountain of the Lord. 
where he speaks about this mysterious character who was there in Eden, who was covered with jewels. Hmm. It's a mini city, the garden. In that, defined by the fact that it has people living in it. And the big thing is this. Who dwells along with Adam and Eve in the garden? God dwells there with his people. Only two of them. It's a place where sacrifice was made. Because remember when Adam and Eve sinned, God covered them with animal skins. Where did he get the skins from? And what did God place at the east of the garden to protect it once Adam was ejected? Cherubim. Now, remember that. Now, later on, now I'm, suggest- I'm suggesting, there are men with much greater and finer minds than me that uh, have, have, have just recently begun to talk about the fact that Eden was actually a temple in that it has, there is temple symbol- symbolism with, with reference to the garden, and I'll, sh- and I'll show you why. Let's move from this quote-unquote temple to the first temple that we can identify in Jewish history, what would that be? I tried to do it without giving it away. Before Solomon's temple, thank you, the tabernacle, hey, mm. love this. Later on in the wilderness, you have this transportable tabernacle. And the tabernacle furnishings were made of, of, of what? Gold, but some of them are wood, covered with gold. Some of the items were pure Gold, solid, right? Like the lampstand. And the tabernacle, for, the high priest wore precious stones on his breastplate. Embroidered on the curtains were fruit trees. The lampstand had branches like almond branches, which are symbols you find in a garden. Guess what was on the Ark of the Covenant? Two cherubim. Hmm. Another name for the tabernacle was what? What do you what do you use when you go Cornwall for Creation Fest, and you don't stay in a hotel tent? That was also known as the tent or the tent of meeting, because it's the meeting place where God met with His people. You consider. Fire by night and a cloud by day that represented the presence of God over the Ark of the Covenant. Next, we get the temple. Solomon's temple. What a construction. And this is now, they're not traveling, they're now in the promised land. right? Now this is a brick built static temple. It's going to be destroyed. And then it's going to be rebuilt, but not to the glory that it originally had. Then it was going to be rebuilt again by Herod during the time of Jesus. And I should have put up a picture of Herod's temple. When you go home, just go online when you get a minute. When you when you just what is it they call when you're on the internet? Mad mental block. When you're browsing, when you're surfing the internet, just type in Herod's temple. And this man, I think he's an Englishman, he's built this, this like it's a scale model. It's probably about as big as this room in his garage. Thank you, bro. In his garage. It's incredible. You look, it's incredible what Herod, and Herod, and Herod built this amazing, this temple. Now, back to what's important. Guess where the temple was situated? 
on a hill, on Mount Zion. Again, it had the same gold furnishings, actually a little bit more elaborate, right? And fruit, again, embroidered on the, on the curtains and, and, and embroidered carvings. You had, what did you have in the box called the Ark of the Covenant? You had, you had the law, two tablets of stone. But what else did you have? Manna. And you had Aaron's rod that budded. Yo, we got garden type. A, you got you got a tree growing in the ark, and it's not in dirt. Reminiscent of the garden. You got pomegranates, fruit hanging from the from the. I'm struggling today, man. Struggling from the hem of the priest's robe. Thank you, Bertram. Pomegranates hanging like fruit from a tree in the te- in the temple. You got carvings of palm trees and open flowers. And again, you've got cherubim on the curtains, on the walls, and on the veil. Remember the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies? And then you've got, the two, you've got these two scary cherubim again. You've got pine floors covered with gold. You've got olive wood doors and cedar beams. Or wood. I mean, the place is surrounded by trees. See that in 1 Kings chapter 6. Like the garden and the tabernacle, it was a place of sacrifice. Necessarily so, because, because it was the only way by which sinful man could meet with God. See, because that was the primary purpose of the sacrificial system. Then we see a temple at the end of human history. In Revelation chapter 21. Remember I said from Genesis to Revelation. We see this temple motif. Revelation 22. We're nearly done. Then the angel. Verse 1. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is Revelation. This ain't Genesis. But it is. Bright as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river. The tree of life. With, 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 with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now to prove that Jesus actually is the new temple, it's really complicated, but may God give us eyes to see. Jesus is the new temple along with us, because we are... Jesus is the chief cornerstone and we are blocks. We are, how does Peter put it? We're living stones built up together. We make up a spiritual house. We are a part of the temple that is Jesus because we're in him. Revelation 21. Watch Jesus, the temple. Then I saw verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the what? The dwelling place of God is with man. A temple. He will dwell with them and they will be his, he will dwell with them and they will be his, you see how we're going back to Eden, back to paradise lost? He, 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. John chapter 1 verse 1 and 14. Jesus, God become a man, tabernacled with man. Remember a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 1, Jesus is the escalator. He's the ladder that connects us to God. He's the mediator in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The temple was to be the place where men and women would meet with and commune with God. What is the fundamental way we can commune with God? In prayer. Thank you, my sister. Prayer. And what does Jesus call God's house? He calls it a house of prayer. That he's so zealous and passionate for. Matthew 21 verse 13, Jesus said in another place, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The temple is to be a house of prayer, a place to meet with and commune with God. And Jesus would now be the place or the person through whom sinners could meet with a holy God. We'll see this developed further in chapter 4 when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. About Jerusalem being abandoned as the central historical place for worship. Jesus would become the unique person and place of God's presence. You want to meet with God? We have to meet with Jesus. Jesus had a passion for God's reverence. He showed his power by his resurrection. His disciples like, wow, he's the Messiah. And it's his body he was speaking about. Not the temple. He's now the temple. And in verse 23 to 25. We see his perception of people. I'm just going to read it and make some comments. And then we're done. Verse 23. Now went back in our text. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. It's like I feel like kind of John's kind of just wrapping up this section right. Tell you kind of what's, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, but they believed in him, but they didn't believe in him. They believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in them, because he knew that man had been corrupted. At this point, Jesus is the only one with a perfectly faithful testimony, which is the writer's point. In the next chapter, you've got Nicodemus, um, who is one of the leaders in Israel, and he's spiritually incompetent. Jesus is the only one that's fully competent. It, not even John the Baptist was impeccably trustworthy. As faithful as he was, he would fail. Only Jesus could be completely, unequivocally trusted Yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? But Jesus, <clears throat> the purpose of his coming would be to bring about a new creation, of which we'll get further insight next week. I'm going to invite the band to come up.
passion for God's place, presence and people. Father, thank you that Jesus had had a passion for you. Jesus has a passion for you. And even on this Mother's Day, we understand that to some degree because, Lord, we're passionate about about our mums. And and rightly so. And yet you had a perfect passion for the Father. To the point where that was displayed so evidently. You were zealous for your Father's house. And And Father, because Jesus knew how important the temple motif was because the temple was where people would meet with God. The temple was a place where you would meet with sinful man and you'd provide opportunity for that to take place. Thank you, Father, that Jesus was passionate about your presence. He, was, he understood and appreciated the reality of your existence and your personal presence. The earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it. And Lord God, you are not only omnipotent, you're all-powerful, you're not only omniscient, you know everything but you're omnipresent. You're everywhere at the same time. Lord, would you forgive us for not appreciating your presence? And your presence isn't here just because we're singing. Your presence isn't here, Lord, just because we're in a a building that's quote-unquote called church. It's not really the church. We're the church. Lord, would you forgive us for neglecting the fact that when we go home in the car on the way home or on the bus or we're in that queue at Subway waiting to get our lunch and the people are being long, Oh Lord, even when we came to church this morning and we had drama in the car or drama at home with family members or siblings or children or parents, drama. Lord, we, I know in those times I completely forget your presence. I don't care. I don't want to hear nothing about nothing. I just want to get my point across. And I want to be heard and I want to, I want to be justified. I want to be vindicated. Even if, it's, if that's a conversation with my wife and I use my words to crush her. Or it's a conversation that a, a child has with a parent and they're off key. They're belligerent and they're disrespectful. Father, we do these things because we forget your presence. We forget that you're present, that you're apparent. Help us to be like Jesus, Father. And help us to be someone that, Lord, we may not know. Jesus knew people. He perceived what was in the heart of man. Father, we can't. Sometimes we can because of the way people, because of what people say or because of what they do. We get, we get insight as to what people are thinking and what's in there. But Lord, but we don't really genuinely know what's in people's hearts. But Father, we know what's in our heart. And the truth of the matter is sometimes we don't even know that. How are we going to judge someone else when we don't even know the, our own, the depths of the wickedness of our own heart? The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who really can know it? Who understands the heart? And Father, David says, Lord, would you search my heart? Because I know, Lord, like David, like when I search my heart, Lord, I skip stuff. But when you search our hearts, Lord, wow. You expose it for what it really is. But you do so because you want to fix it. You want to heal our hearts. You want to help us. Because you're passionate about people. That's why you created the temple. So that you could meet with us. And you broke down that middle wall of partition. 
temple was filled with walls of partition, Lord, but you broke that and that most important veil that separated man from the presence of God. Apart from blood, Jesus came and shed his blood once and for all in order that we might be able to come behind the veil and enjoy the presence of God. Father, would you help us to appreciate all that you've provided for us in Jesus? Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.